Welcome to The Spiritual Masters, a podcast from Tan Books and Tan Direction, in which we look at the greatest and holiest writers from Catholic history. Join us as we explore the life and times in which they lived, an overview and study of their greatest works, and how we as Catholics can look to these masters as models for our own holiness on our journey to heaven. Hello, Tan fans. Uh, today we have our our very special author and translator and friend, Father Robert Nixon, to talk to us about the great Thomas Akempis. And so thank you for being here, Father, all the way from Australia. How are you today? Thanks very much, Cotter. It's a, it's a great privilege to be here to talk to you about this great author, the blessed or the venerable Thomas Akempis. Why don't you begin uh, with a quick prayer for us and our and our listeners, and uh, hopefully we can invoke a little bit of help of Thomas Akempis to enlighten our minds today. Indeed. Almighty God, we ask that your spirit be with us today, that we be guided by the wisdom and the humility and the inspiration of blessed Thomas Akempis as we explore his life and what he has to offer us today. We ask this through the intercession of our Holy Father, St. Benedict, and also through the intercession and guidance and spirit of the blessed Thomas Akempis. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. So, to talk about Thomas Akempis, it seemed to me, that we needed to first mention kind of the obvious, which is he's known as the author of Imitation of Christ. Now, in our next episode, we're going to dive deep into the work, the Imitation of Christ. But I, I thought it was proper, before we talk about his, his more specific biography, I wanted to mention that I've always heard that the Imitation of Christ is the second best-selling book of all time. You know, <laughs> I don't know who was counting all the books sold a long time yeah. ago. But it's in countless uh, translations throughout the world. Yep, yeah. It's had countless editions. I mean, today you can find many editions of it. Yep, yep. We have we have three editions ourselves at Tan, which we'll talk a little bit more about in the next episode. But in other words, other than the Holy Spirit, who's the author of the the Bible, <laughs> right? Thomas Thomas Akempis is the greatest selling author of all time. That's an incredible claim to fame. But we don't. So everyone knows that the Imitation of Christ is such an important book, and most Catholics either have read it or they know they should read it. It's it's quoted by so many saints in so many works, but we don't know enough about the man himself. And so I, that's why I think it's it's so important to know who the heck is this guy? Who is this this blessed yeah. or venerable? Thomas Akempis. Yeah, um, very interesting. And one of the things which he talks about in the imitation of the Christ is uh, amare neshi, love to be not known. So the fact that we don't know that much about him is probably part of his own uh, intention. It's probably part of his plan. In fact, the early editions and the manuscripts of the imitation of Christ normally don't have his name listed as the author. And he always sought to be um, to be unknown. He would um, he would he would love to write and then just to let his work be out there and not to have it uh, it credited to him. So he sought always um, this kind of anonymity, and I think that 
that's carried out or reflected in the fact that most people don't know too much about him as a person. But he had a truly fascinating life. He was born um, towards the very end of the Middle Ages and came from a fairly humble family origin. Um, his father was a blacksmith. His mother was like a, a small uh, schoolmistress, a, a school teacher. And um, so he came from, from very humble stock, but devoted himself from a young age to, uh, to the faith. He had a great love of learning. He showed great aptitude and, um, and so was very keen to enter into the religious life. Yeah, I think at that time, a little bit of my research showed that there was a revival going on. Um, and in and, and that time, you know, the church had become, you know, highly regulated. It was very, very structured. You know, it's kind of the height of the church in the Middle Ages. Yeah. But there were some reformers. Um, who were trying to say, let's get back to the devotional life and the, yeah. the humble life, a life of mortification and penance. And there was a particular guy, Groot. How do you say yeah, that? How do yeah. you say that guy's name? Well, yeah, well, it depends on what language is, but uh, De Groot would yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, that's him. And then he kind of led a revival. And so yeah. I, I guess a Kempis's Thomas's he he appeared on the stage at this time. He did. And there was a there was he he participated kind of in this revival. Yeah. And so the work of imitation of Christ kind of springs forth Re from that. Reflects that very much so. So this was, there was a movement uh, known as the Brotherhood of Common Life. And this was something like, uh, it was a kind of lay movement um, in which there was an attempt to bring the spiritual riches of the church to lay Catholics. And until this point, um, the the spiritual life had largely been the exclusive domain of of monks and nuns and uh, of of the clergy, and so at this time this was as I mentioned towards the end of the Middle Ages the emergence of the the modern era, there was a number of factors which led to this reawakening of the faith life and foremost amongst these was the increase in literacy. Mm. Um, amongst the middle classes, in fact, the emergence of a middle class itself. So prior to this, throughout most of the Middle Ages, literacy had been confined either to the clergy and religious or to the upper echelons, and the rest of society had, had simply been content just to go along to Mass and to let the clergy pray on their behalf. But people were now able to access uh, these scriptures and other publications. And, and this was part of the reason which led to this revival or this um, renewal of interest amongst the Catholic laity in, in reading the scriptures and other spiritual writings. So the Brotherhood of Common Life, which Thomas Kempis joined at a young age, was a basically a, a lay society, but of people who devoted themselves to, uh, to the praying of the divine office, to reading of scripture, but not vowing themselves to uh, necessarily to to a lifetime commitment. But at some point he realizes he might have a vocation, right? He did indeed. So he lived within this brotherhood of common life for a number of years. Um, and then at, this, at, at a certain point he realized that God was calling him to a lifelong commitment. And so he entered the canons regular and uh, lived out the rest of his days um, 
as a committed uh, canon, which is a kind of life which is somewhat similar to monastic life. Yeah, I was about to ask, like, how, how would you explain what that is to, you know, our listeners? I mean, yeah, what yeah. is it? Is it a religious order? It, it, basically, it is like a religious order. So combining elements of monastic life, but with elements of the uh, of the pastoral ministry of priests. And I mean, there are still canons in existence today, mm-hmm. quite quite a, a, a good number of them. So this was the type of life which Thomas Akempis- Don't they uh, refer to Norbertines as canons? Indeed, they are yeah. canons, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, so what, what does canon mean? It doesn't sound like father. Well, I, get, no, no, I get father, but what does yeah, canon yeah. mean? So canon basically means um, a rule. So it's it's a religious person living according to a rule. So it's a basically um, uh, n- not quite a monk because canons would be typically involved in, in parish work which traditionally monks didn't do so much. So that's that's the essence of it. Okay. So, yeah. So so he is in the diocese of Cologne. Which in is, Cologne, which, which is was one of the one of the big uh, German centers. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So he's a German guy, right? Well is he German? Uh, basically German, of course, the the the, the divisions between different uh, nations were not quite exactly what they were today. Right. So you could say uh, he he was German and and also uh, Dutch because okay. these these countries were were borderline. Of course, Dutch actually means German, Deutsch, right. and so forth. So okay. yeah, uh, Dutch slash um, German. So he enters, and I know that. Uh, well, he has a twin brother, right? Which is yeah. kind of cool. I got twins. I think twins are cool. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has this twin brother. Um, who has actually gone ahead of him. Ahead of him, yeah. And, and has been in the canons for a number of years. So Thomas Akempis was kind of following in the footsteps of his twin brother, twin but older. Older. Very, very slightly older. So the first one to be born. And so he entered also into this. That's the thing with twins is like they have a nine-month race and lose by five minutes. They, they, know, they so. do indeed. <laughs> they do indeed. So... Um, Thomas Akempis, he was always the junior to his to his older brother, and although he was often called upon to take leadership roles within uh, the religious community, it was his own preference not to do this, yeah. to remain in the background. Now, in the background in those days, very much like the Benedictines had done, he becomes a scribe, right? So tell he, us what... He becomes a scribe, and, and one of his great loves was was copying books out by hand. And this was just as printing was starting to come into existence. But he copied out the entire Bible a big number of times, I think four times by hand. That's incredible. How yeah. long, do you have any idea how long it would take to do that? Like to do one uh, Bible? Yeah, yeah. How many years? It would take several, several years to do. You know? So, I mean, and, I, when I read that, that he you know, had copied the Bible multiple times, it said, you know, that told me, no wonder he can cite scripture so easily, right? I yeah. mean, if I copied all of scripture four times, I could probably cite my Bible a little better than I do, you know? But the imitation indeed, of indeed. Christ is, I mean, every few lines is is a quote to scripture. I mean, yeah. the, when the Protestants that think that Catholics don't know their Bible, okay, maybe we don't today, yeah, yeah, but I mean, just yeah. look at some of these guys. Indeed. Every other line is scripture-based. Yeah, yeah. And and so this was a particular characteristic of the style of writing. I have to say, Connor, from the point of view of of a translator, um, if you're working from an edition which 
a Latin edition which doesn't have the footnotes, it is actually one of the great challenges mm. because you recognize, yeah, this is a quote from scripture. And then you think, oh, where is it? And and so, so did they even use quote marks? Like when you're working no, with this Latin text, they no, didn't even no, use quote marks. So you just see a line they, and you don't they, even they know. They don't wow. use they don't use quotation that's, marks. Man, that's and, crazy. And they assume that their readers will recognize <laughs> these these biblical references and know where they're coming from. I have to say, um, the practice of constantly citing chapter and verse yeah. is very much a Protestant thing. Oh. In in the traditional Catholic um, world and Catholic approach, you don't cite the chapter and verse. You just assume that people know where it comes okay. from. So, <laughs> <laughs> that makes me feel better because I can't ever cite chapter and verse. Well, no, <laughs> no. Uh, I, I, I tend not to do it myself either. Well. But but as as a as a translator, you know, I need to put in the footnotes so people can identify it. Sometimes putting in all the footnotes actually takes longer than translating the text oh, itself. Oh, man. Well, I can relate to that. Whenever I'm writing, a, when I wrote a paper in grad school, citations took longer okay, <laughs> than okay. the actual research, you know. Yeah. So I can, I, can, I can see that. I can see that. All right. So, so he is sitting there transcribing, copying Bibles, learning, yeah, learning and, scripture. And, and, and not only the Bible, but he copied virtually the complete works of, of St. Bernard of Clairvaux. That's right. I forgot is, about which that. Which is quite astonishing. He's one of my favorite saints bernard of clairvaux i just i just love that guy i've been reading a, a biography on him that tan publishes bernard is another guy we need to have another whole podcast on but he he's remarkable so you know for for a campus to have been influenced that deeply by bernard makes a lot of sense to me you know yeah, it's, yeah. it's because bernard was okay so he's bernard's around a thousand a.d right i mean so he's yeah. 400 years yep, i guess yep, before yep. Thomas Akempis. Yep. Bernard, a doctor of the church. A, a doctor right? of the church. Yeah. And so if so I'm just saying the influence, the pedagogy there was yep. significant on uh, Akempis. Yeah, he, he was indeed. And and also Augustine. Did so he copy Augustine's works too? He did. Oh, he did. Man. Okay. And He's got the total package though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um the 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 canons live basically uh, according to the rule of Saint Augustine. Augustine, so. yeah, All right, okay, okay. So so he has had the perfect uh, training um, to yeah. write a book like Imitation of Christ because he's yeah. got oh, uh, uh, scripture, he's got the intellectual powerhouse of Augustine, but he has that spiritual side of Bernard of Clairvaux. I mean, that's like the perfect trifecta. He does, he yeah. does, and and in addition to all of this. He has his own experience of life, mm. which began as a, a lay person, a lay Catholic, within the brotherhood of common life, trying to live a life of great fidelity, and then as a committed religious. Mm. So I think this is part of the key to the great appeal of the imitation of Christ, yeah. that it is accessible that it is written from the perspective both of a lay person, a lay Catholic, and equally so from the perspective of a person who is committed to the religious life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're going to dive more into the to the imitation of Christ uh, next episode here. So, <clears throat> I guess in his biography, uh, I'm at a point where I wanted to talk about this apparition he had. Is this a good time to do that? Of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Yeah. Yes, it is. It is. It, and can this, I can I read the passage? Yeah, that would be fantastic. All right. So this is this is in the your 
uh, some of the introductory material. This is a short life of Venerable Thomas Akempis uh, that's in the front of our work on humility and the elevation of the mind to God. And so I'll just read a little. I just, I just thought this was a great little story. <clears throat> then a vision came to him, Thomas Akempis. One night in a dream, he was standing in the lecture room with an assembly of other scholars. His masters of studies, Florentius, was there also, and the students were listening attentively as he read to them the words of Scripture. Suddenly, Thomas beheld a cloud coming down from heaven on which stood Holy Mary, the Queen of heaven and earth. Though she was invisible to everyone else, Thomas saw her move around the room and embrace and kiss each of the students in turn with maternal love. He himself felt his devotion to her burn with renewed ardor. Joyfully, he awaited for her to arrive at him, hoping and expecting to receive her gracious and kindly embrace. And this is where it gets interesting. Mm. But when the mother of God arrived at him, she did not embrace him at all, but instead reprimanded him bitterly. Quote, you expect me to receive, you expect to receive my embrace, you who neglect to pay me the honor you had once promised to me? Where have your customary devotions gone? Why have your prayers vanished? The homage which you formerly poured out to me with sighs and tears? Has your love for me grown cold and your ardor become dull? Why does your former piety vacillate thus? Depart from me, for you are surely unworthy of my embrace, since you have neglected such an easy thing as to offer a daily greeting to your beloved. So that's a dream, I guess, that yeah. he had. So I, maybe not in apparition, but uh, at least, yeah. you know, in dream. But uh, that's a harsh dream for, you know, it, a monk it, to have it, about the Blessed Mother. It, it, is, it scared indeed, him to death, indeed. and it was a, a, a turning point in his life, I guess. So yeah. just talk about that. Okay. So so this vision um, of the Blessed Virgin Mary, I think, really puts into perspective the importance of Marian devotion, um, not only to... Thomas personally, but more broadly in relation to the Christian faith, that Mary appears and she renews in him this faith which had been waning a mm. little bit. Mm. And not, not that he had ceased to be devoted to her, but somehow in the course of everything, um, this devotion had, had come to assume less prominence in his in his day-to-day -day life. Yeah. And um, I think there is actually a much, there is a deeper meaning to this vision than the experience of Thomas Akempis mm. alone. Because at the stage, at the point in history at which um, Thomas lived, as you mentioned before, was one of, um, of renewal, of reformation, um, and and this was actually more or less at the point in history at which the 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 so-called reformation or the the you know protestantism as such was starting to emerge mm. and the general environment both of church and the society in general was was reevaluating of reassessing the importance of of a number of different things and the fact that Thomas had this vision was like a wonderful reminder of the importance of the Blessed Virgin of Mary in the Christian life in mm. general. I, I bet he got that 
from Bernard of Clairvaux. From you know his work on Bernard of Clairvaux because Bernard was one of the early, not super early, but major proponents, right, of Marian devotion. In fact, I heard that uh, Louis de Montfort, another doctor of the church, was called Little Bernard <laughs> because yeah, yeah, because yeah. of the devotion to Mary. So I'm just I'm just saying maybe. Thomas was influenced uh, in knowing how important Marian devotion was by his work on Bernard, but maybe not. But that's a thought I had. No, very much so. Very much so. And and this was a stage when Marian devotion began to be questioned mm-hmm. by the uh, by the you know by the forerunners of Protestantism. Right, right. Yeah. And and so Thomas lived at that time. At that time, when, when that right was before the Reformation place. happens, yeah, but yeah, the. Yeah. The, and, the the hustle and bustle of the yeah, Protestant Reformation's yeah, in, beginning, in, in, indeed, right? indeed, right. and and I mean, people um, Thomas Aquinas is actually very highly esteemed amongst Protestant readers as well. Yeah, that's another um, like inf- like when you read like the people who he influenced, it's like John Wesley and yeah, and, and Henry yeah, VIII. Yeah, okay, you yeah. got the, the 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 founder of Methodism, yeah. and and the founder of Anglicanism, right? And yeah, so I mean, yeah. these guys really loved you know Aquinas. They they did indeed. And um, I think his his striving to bring the faith, the importance of spirituality, um, well, that's something which which the Protestants often identify themselves with. Right. Um, it's not it's not something which is um, which is in opposition to the Catholic faith either. Sure. So um, yeah, so it's something which which both um, Catholics and Protestants have in common, and we can identify Thomas Aquinas as as a person, as an individual who appeals to both um, both streams of Christianity, not in so far as that they're opposed, but in so far as um, Christianity by its nature um, or Authentic Christianity is um, is something which involves the devotional life of both the laity and the religious. Yeah, yeah. So, Marian devotion, scriptural understanding. Clearly, he's uh, an intellectual. Um, he lives. You know, the the little bit that I read about his life. I mean. He clearly lived a holy, holy life, right? Yeah. So he kind of meets every, all the standards of sanctity. Why is he not Saint Thomas Aquinas? Ah, a very, a very interesting question you raise there. And one of the answers which is traditionally given, which is a kind of semi-legendary answer, is that they found that his body had actually moved. In his tomb, and from this they concluded that you know he was he was actually buried before he had really died. Yeah, he was yes buried and, alive, and because Gosh. of this fact that they that they can't say oh well possibly he didn't die in a state of perfect grace. We can't be absolutely sure because who knows what thoughts would pass through a person's mind. All right, so but for the record, from me. If you live an amazing life and you're going to be canonized and then they bury you alive by accident and then you try to get out of your coffin and they strip canonization away from you, that's like 
the worst. <laughs> it's like pulling the rug out from somebody. Well, uh, well, all time well, worst pulling the rug well, out from you. Well, you know? well it is. And, and, <laughs> it's like and the poor guy. And, and, <laughs> no. Look, and and in fact, and in fact, Connor, um, in all fairness, that story didn't really come into circulation until much, much later. Really? Because I even heard there was claw marks on the inside yeah, of the coffin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's true, yeah. but man, I mean, yeah, yeah, if they buried me alive, yeah, I'd try okay. to get yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that doesn't mean I shouldn't be yeah, canonized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, in fact, in fact, that's that story. I'm not saying I should be canonized, no. just for the record. No. <laughs> um, well, I wouldn't rule it. Rule, <laughs> rule. Uh, me neither. Yeah. And in fact, of course, all, all. All people, all Christians are called to be saints right. because being a saint basically means being in heaven. Right. So, yeah. But, um, no, that story is really apocryphal. Okay. It's a, it's a, it's a great story. But yeah, it's a great no. story. So why he wasn't canonized um, is, yeah, in fact, um, it's important to bear in mind that a person is canonized not because they write wonderful books. But um, for a range of, uh, well, for a complex range of other eventualities, which which may or may not be there, mm-hmm. and uh, the fact that a person isn't declared a saint or isn't added to the canon of saints doesn't mean that they're not a saint mm-hmm. in the sense that they're a, a person who is is very holy and so forth. So. Um, the fact that we don't call him Saint Thomas Akempis um, doesn't in any way detract from his um, undoubtable sanctity, yeah. from yeah. the fact that he is a saint. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's a. It's it's. Uh, I don't know. I kind of wish he was, but if we can call him venerable or blessed, you know, because the tradition does that, it makes me feel a little better. It's a nice consolation prize, you know. <laughs> Indeed. <but. laughs> anyway, so you know. Um, you know, we're going to talk more about his kind of how we apply his teachings to our daily life in a, in a subsequent episode here. Um, but any last thoughts on his life, um, on what he means to you personally, you know, <clears throat> anything yeah. else biographical that you want to add to this discussion before we move on to the next episode? Um, well, I would say that he his life exemplifies one of obedience, of fidelity. Um, He is a kind of quiet achiever. And so many Catholics um, are called, you know, we're we're called to fidelity um, in the ordinariness of our daily life, in the quiet dedication to service, in the uncomplaining patient acceptance of our challenges, big and small, and above all, by our unwavering devotion to love of God in both the big and the small things of our earthly journey. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So we've covered a lot about his life, his his uh, entering into the his order, being a scribe, his Marian devotion, his time in this unique, you know, point in history where the Reformation is coming out. Um, <clears throat> so, but tell us a little bit more about what 
his his other work. So we talked about imitation of Christ, yeah. but we're going to talk about some other works, you know, in subsequent episodes. But there's even more that we won't get to. So talk talk about the breadth of his work, other than just transcribing Bibles and the works of other saints. Yeah. So um, Thomas was a very productive author. He wrote a great deal of works in a in a in a huge range of genres, and although the imitation of Christ is regarded as his masterpiece, which it indeed is. Um, his collected works take up, um, depending upon which edition, between um, between three and eight entire volumes. And that might not sound like a big number, but these are like volumes of well over... 1,000 pages wow. each wow. and 1,000 pages of very small print. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. um, so um, in terms of... Do you have these volumes? We do. We do. Is that your monitor? Tell, tell them about that. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but I mean, that's, okay. it's pretty cool how you have access to these ancient, you know, volumes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so the, these volumes, we have access to them. I have access to them. Everyone really has access because to them. Of because of digital stuff? Because of their general digital availability. Um, so in terms of length, um, it would be fair to say that the imitation of Christ is like 5% of the total output wow. of Thomas <laughs> Kempis. Yeah. See, that's incredible. I mean, I, I made a little last night when you were giving a talk at Belmont Abbey and I, I was introducing you. I, I made a little joke about finding a lost work of Thomas Akempis. It's, to me, it's sort of like George Lucas uh, finding out that he he made another episode of Star Wars and never released it. You know, yeah. I mean, it's like this incredible masterpiece. Yeah. And yeah, Akempis and, you know, the different level than than George Lucas. OK, but I'm saying, you know, to, to find that yeah. something that you love so much, there's a whole lot more of it. Yeah. It's a very yeah. exciting experience. You it, know? It, it is. It is a very exciting experience. And all of these books uh, were written in, in the Latin language. And the reason they were written in Latin was because this was the, um, well, it was the common language, not only of the church, but of um, of of writing, of literacy, of um, of 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 everything, basically. Probably a universal it, language it, it, that it cut through it, it all was, the vernaculars. It yeah. was. It was. So to put it in this sense, um, Latin was to to people of the Middle Ages and of the post Middle Ages of the of the of the early modern period what English is to the world today. Yeah, yeah. it was kind of the default yeah. mode of expression. And um, the works of Thomas Akempis cover a, 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 a diversity of different things. So we've got works of spiritual instruction and guidance, um, of which the imitation of Christ is is uh, is um, is is one amongst many. We have also biographical writings, lives of saints, and so forth. In particular, lives of people associated with the Brotherhood of Common Life, of hmm. which Thomas uh, Kempis was a member. 
We have also um, scriptural uh, expositions, commentaries. We have collections of homilies, of prayers. Um, We have also um, his um, correspondence with, you know, letters to and from various other people. So this... um, this the collected works of of Thomas Akempis. Um, some of them have been translated into English. Some of them remain untranslated. Uh, some of them, uh, the the untranslated ones, I've worked to 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 make available in English, including humility and the elevation of the mind to God. Well, tell yeah. us just a little bit about what you know what that is. So. Um, the particular one, humility, was, is talking about the the virtue of humility and its its importance in in bringing the Catholic to uh, a greater state of self understanding, of openness, of obedience, and so forth. The elevation of the mind to God is talking about the 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 ability to leave behind the things which hold us back, which restrain us, and to bring the mind into more perfect unity with, with the higher things, with God, with eternity, with the kingdom of heaven. That's a real common theme in his writings, I'm finding, you know, that, that he, he understood education, and it was great, but he also knew that it could be a trap for pride, and essentially he, he wanted people to detach from the intellectual to intellectual life for this not to he appreciated the intellectual life but he knew that it could be dangerous and it was not the end of the spiritual life so he seems to yeah. talk a lot about that he talks about the dangers of the intellectual life in both imitation of christ and our book now humility and the elevation of yeah, mind to god yeah, so yeah. he was aware of this in perhaps a way that other scholastic theologians might not have been yeah yeah well he was he was aware of it and one of the things connor is um people say that um, a person who a priest who gives a homily is very often addressing it well to themselves first and foremost and thomas akempis was he was a, a very intelligent person he very could have easily have become puffed up with his own intellectual gifts and everything and and gone on to be one of these, you know, celebrity scholars and everything. So when he talks about the dangers of of intellectual pride and so forth, he's talking, well, he's talking to himself because he recognises this is something, this is a path which he could go down himself and he's also talking to his to his many students and friends and, and you know he realizes the the real peril yeah. of becoming puffed up with one's own intellectual capacities at the expense of humility obedience and true love of god yeah yeah and we're going to talk about this because there's some powerful lines in this book that we now publish with you the other work that we have coming out at some point in the future is a book on solitude and silence. And yeah. So tell us just a little bit about what that is, because I haven't yeah. seen any of that yet. But yep. Tell us a little bit about it. So um, silence and solitude were things which Thomas esteemed very highly. 
And he once said, I have found happiness and peace nowhere else but in quiet, solitary corners and in books. And in books, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so silence and solitude um, in Thomas Akempis' own time were things which most people found were really, really hard to come by. And but they didn't have cell phones and iPads, well, and, you know. I mean, so you'd no, think that they no. didn't have any distractions, <laughs> you, you know. You, you, you would think so. <laughs> you would think so. But um, I guess in a lot of ways, the um, the very late Middle Ages, the um, early modern period, had a lot in common with the situation in people in which people find themselves now. Mm. They were makes uh, me feel better, actually. Yeah, they were. <laughs> they were times when when um, when the when people um, found that they were pulled in in multiple different directions at the same time, um, people in religious life then, as now, found that they had more jobs um, than they, than, you know, the idea of one person having one job, one role, um, then, as in now, was an ideal but was, you know, was not the, the reality of life for most people. Um, so silence and solitude is a work which reminds us that in order to be truly present to God, in order to be truly present to our own hearts, we need to allow these spaces, these, these opportunities for reflection, for meditation, for prayer, hmm. and that we're not going to have these unless we're able to turn off the distractions, to turn off the many things, to return ourselves to the one thing necessary. It's beautiful, beautiful. And I, I wrote a book a while back called Still Amidst the Storm, and it's very much about anxiety in the modern world, but I kind of give a three-part recipe to tackle anxiety. One, living in the present moment. Two, silence, embracing silence, getting away from the noise. And then three, stillness, not having to move and all this nervous energy. Um, but, you know, my little writing of that was very much influenced by my reading of Imitation of Christ, um, which we'll, we're going to go to in just a minute here. But it's in our modern world. I'm, I'm excited about this book on silence and solitude because I believe, well, I know that we have a pandemic of anxiety and stress in, um, in our in our society, and it's largely because of all the noise and all the fast movement that we have to, you know, we have to go buy something, we have to be consumers, we have to watch something, we have to have radio in the car, like it's just chaos. So I hope that Akempis's work on silence and solitude, you know, appears to our customers as it's it's an antidote to their anxiety, which they which good Catholics suffer from as as bad as anyone else because we are living. And we're inundated with all of this noise and fast-paced lifestyle. So I'm excited about seeing that manuscript whenever we get that. So in closing, um, why don't you tell us a little bit, you know, just a takeaway. Um, what do you think uh, uh, Thomas Akempis and his writing and, 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 his, and his, him as a man, him as a saint in heaven, we presume, um, you know, that, that can intercede for us? What's the takeaway? Um uh, for us in today's, in our, our world today and our busy lives, 
Um, what should we, if take away one or two main things from him, um, what are those things for us to you know improve our daily life and our relationship with God? So what uh, Thomas Akempis says offers offers the modern reader offers each one of us self knowledge, honesty, recognizing our own struggles. He offers us also that we can approach God, we can um, we can aspire to to this magnificent vocation of sanctity, of union with God amidst the ordinariness, the everydayness of our daily lives. Whatever we're doing in life, whether it's exceptional, whether it's humdrum, um, God is right there beside us in all of this. God asks of us fidelity, and fidelity is a thing which is both very ordinary, very everyday, but at the same time, very heroic, very demanding, very rewarding. Thomas Akempis tells us that God asks of us nothing more than what we can honestly do. And in return for this, he promises us something beyond all we've ever imagined or hoped for. Beautiful. Well, uh, that's a great overview of this incredible man. Thank you, Father, for that wonderful insight. And next time we're going to jump in and talk in a little bit more detail about the imitation of Christ. So um, thank you for that, and we'll, uh, we'll be back. Thank you, Connor. This has been an episode of The Spiritual Masters, a podcast from Tan Books and Tan Direction. To follow the show, learn about more inspiring holy men and women, and to get special offers exclusive to Spiritual Masters listeners, sign up at spiritualmasterspodcast.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.